there comes a point in their lifetime where they meet the first big customer who says, show me your security policy, show me that you're serious, and most of the companies just don't have it. Nothing like a big customer requirement to sort of motivate you into action. In a sense, it doesn't increase the value of your product when it's secure. Just if you have a bad security experience, you know, it can devastate your company. Starting points could be vastly different. But security by itself, it's a mindset. It's something you need to integrate into everything you do, how you think, how you're building stuff. Most startups are generally in an existential mode. Just be a little bit more secure than your competitors. Hi, I'm Guy Pojarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybeat, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybeat.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Secure Developer. Today with us, we have Geva Solomonovic. Hi, Geva. <laughs> Hi, Guy. And we're going to be talking about security policies, which sounds all sort of formal and bureaucracy-like, but in fact, there's you know a lot of good substance in them. They're not just sort of a necessary evil, but something that could be quite useful. So Geva has a fair bit of experience there, and we'll we'll explore that world in a bit. I guess before we get started, Geva, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your background, how you got into security? Sure, absolutely. So I've been um, for the last uh, ten years or so more involved uh, in more something more broad than maybe risk management. So I've been in an anti-fraud company. I worked at PayPal, then I worked at another payments company, and in all of those, a bigger uh, component was a uh, kind of risk management, which is uh, very similar to security in the mindset that you're always uh, thinking what can happen and what can I do to protect myself and and how to better manage it. And kind of towards uh, this year, I started doing also just this security consulting, you know, helping companies uh, with their cloud infrastructure, with their policies, with their development policies and practices. And it's been uh, great so far. Yeah, and it's, it's a good point about sort of risk reduction and sort of all these practices around fraud and security. I guess we sometimes we get stuck when we talk about security about all the sort of technical implementations of them when you talk about whatever running some test in your continuous integration process or protecting from SQL injection. But when you take it up a level, security and all these security controls are about risk reduction. They're about reducing the probability of something bad happening, whether you've done it via Reducing fraud and catching a, a bad payment, or whether you've done it via, you know, some input validation in your code that prevents an attack. So, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting path, but yeah, totally logical. So let, let, let's kind of focus a little bit on that sort of latter section you talked about. So you do consulting today about security policies. How does that come about? Who do you interact with when you are building a security policy? You know, what's the motivation for for starting that conversation? So most of the clients or customers I've worked with so far. There comes a point in the life cycle uh, as a startup, as most uh, most of the companies I've helped so far, comes a point in their lifetime where they meet the first big uh, customer who says, "Okay, before we integrate here and I give you some APIs or I share with you some uh, data, you know, show me your architecture documents, show me your security policy, show me that uh, you're serious." And most of the companies just don't uh, have it, and then they're at a point where they're scrambling. Uh, to have something that's you know they can show to this uh, customer so they get the business, and you know at that point you know they raise their head and they look in somebody to help them uh, solve that immediate uh, pain point, and that's oftentimes a point where I 
I get introduced into the company and that and that's a segue for us to work together and then explore other things but oftentimes it does start with a need for a security policy to to satisfy some big customer who wants to see seriousness from the from the company yeah nothing like a, a big customer uh, requirement to sort of motivate you into action <laughs> so okay so you know we're in the situation you know i have a startup you know i have this first big customer they ask for a security policy i come talk to you what happens, right? What's the the first conversation then? Well, the first conversation is uh, you know get rid of this uh, pain point that they that they have. Uh, I mean, most of uh, startups are generally in uh, existential mode, so you know they're working mostly on their product and uh, getting more customers and security. Everybody knows they need to do it, but it's kind of an aftermath, and in a sense, it doesn't increase the value of your product uh, when it's secure. Just if you have a bad security experience, and you know it can devastate your company. So most of the companies aren't as proactive as they could be in thinking about security. And again, you know, it comes a point where somebody is demanding it from them, and that's when they're scrambling and and they're ready to open up and invest and put that put those resources in to do what needs to be done. Yeah, I guess security is invisible, right? You sort of you don't see the. Uh... The, the problem or the fact that you have high risk unless it was exploited at which point you know you're feeling the incredible pain but there's no obvious feedback loop so you know we're there they understood they want to take the pain away what happens <laughs> so then when we're talking about a policy well I usually tell them there are kind of a three categories of policies you can be thinking of one which I call the, a presentable policy which is a policy that kind of details in very nice English that you're a serious company, that you've thought about security and all these different aspects. And I call it presentable because the goal of the product is to give it to a vendor, a customer, a partner, somebody you're trying, you know, not to impress, but to show the level of seriousness. And this is a great policy to have. It doesn't serve with other needs you might have in the organization. A big one is, for example, educating your employees. So it's not a good tool uh, you know, to tell the employees what they need to do and uh, to teach them. And that's a, a different type of uh, security policy. I call it uh, an internal security policy, which is more like maybe you know, a handbook, a set of uh, best practices, a set of, you know, this is the stuff we do, these are the kinds of stuff we don't do, and you know, this is the rationale. The internal policy is geared more toward being pragmatic advice that employees will read and understand and uh, do. And then there's a third one, let's call it the elaborate security policy, which would be tens of pages, maybe approaching 100 pages, which will really cover every different aspect of security in the company, including all the procedures, all the processes, all the tickets, all the event handling. And that, of course, is not a good tool for educating employees because nobody wants to read a 100-page security document. It's not a good tool to send it to customers, but it is something you'd need if you're kind of engaging in an audit level relationship with a, you know with somebody serious like you're working with a bank or you're working with the government or or something of that nature and they you know don't want to see something that's at a presentable level but something that's really really deep and that they can verify and then go in your organization and okay you say you have a, you know so and so many hours SLA to handle a vulnerabilities well they want to see that you actually can do it so what's the relationship between the security policy that you wrote down and the security policy that you apply. I mean, say let's let's take the first example you talked about the presentable security policy. So, 
you go through it, you create a security policy. We'll talk a little bit about contents in a bit. And you say you're doing stuff there, right? You say you are using whatever two-factor authentication one thing, or you're encrypting some private data. How does that interact with actually doing it? I'm just I'm trying to understand the delta between the presentable and the employee-oriented. Is it is it often that you build the two together with you know the second one being the employee one being uh, uh, meant to actually do it, uh, actually sort of apply the security practices? Well, I see it more as a ju- just the level of the detail. So the employee one is like a real practical one, maybe even you know down to the code level. You know, we don't use this library; we use that library. Okay, which of course is not interesting to any customer if you tell your employees to use this library, that library. The presentable one is more between a high level and a not low level, but let's say high level and mid level description of of your thought process of it. Try not to put there too many very detailed uh, things, and uh, so not to get anybody in trouble. But it, but again, the focus is to show that we are thinking of all these different assets. You know, we have thought about how we access our environments, how we treat our physical devices, how we you know the laptops, uh, the locks in the office, the employees that we do background checks on the uh, new people that we hire, training. We have an onboarding and offboarding uh, policy. Although we might not detail it in a whole lot of words in the policy, but we do say we have one, and you know how we manage uh, data. We have a retention, we have a backup, we have encryption, we have a, a you know separation between different customers. Your data is not going to get mixed up with somebody else's data. Yeah. You know how we look at the network security. You know we have a firewall, we have a routing rules. We test them. We do this and we do that. Right. Monitoring. Okay, we don't go into detail how many employees are sitting and and monitoring and who's uh, listening on the queue and is anybody getting uh, waking up in the middle of the night. But we just say, okay, we're monitoring all this stuff using all these tools, etc. Right. So you have um, like these things are. This is both the indication of the areas of concern that you've identified. You know the areas where you understand this is a security consideration and that you're looking at it. But the presentable security policy, or the one that you want to display, should give you some wiggle room to say, first of all, I want to be able to apply it in a reasonable sense, not sort of commit to some specific components, that you wouldn't need to change it all that frequently because you could just evolve it. But also probably a big component of it would be evolution, right? So I can start off by saying I'm restricting access to my servers and do it, you know, by you know, tracking the specific individuals, you're kind of a small company, you know exactly who has it. And then as your company becomes bigger, there might be some other form of management that you're uh, that you're doing that, you know, has like more audit levels or has more key management uh, because it was necessary. But the same policy or the same statements in the policy uh, kind of apply to it. Still apply, yeah. yeah. And and it's a beginning for a conversation. So if one of your customers wants to drill down, then you know he has a starting point and then you can drill down. And uh, you know, so far the feedback's been uh, pretty good. Everybody's been happy, and uh, hopefully, helping people get more business is always uh, always a pleasure. Yeah, I find you know whenever I sort of interact, and even in in our own security policy, right? When we uh, kind of built one, right? That we worked with you, uh, give on doing that. Even the areas that you know, even the uh, actions that you know you want to take, when you sit down and you need to write them down in a policy, it forces. More structured thinking about it, right, and forces you to understand. Okay, I knew that this is a risk, but am I actually like taking action here? Am I, you know, modeling it or sort of, you know, addressing it in a way that I find satisfactory? So it, it felt like very much like a useful exercise to do, regardless of your level of expertise, right? Like even if you're 
it's a, a type of activity that you already know to do. But then of course for, for people that are not in the security landscape, you know, many of these might be just eye opening, right? Um, um, definitely that's uh, the case. You know, there's definitely d- different levels of uh, education and uh, different levels of uh, attention to the security and companies at different levels have invested in it or have uh, different types of knowledge. So kind of when I come in and uh, help, starting points could be vastly different. But with everybody, the first thing I, I say, you know, security is not a, I can't come in and, you know, spend 10 hours with you and then say uh, you're secure because security by itself, it's a mindset. It's something you need to integrate into everything you do, how you think, how you're building, uh, how you're building stuff. And we start a conversation and every change we need to, to make, we also talk about why is it good or what could be wrong and how you need to think about it going forward. So you can apply the same kind of logic for other stuff. Uh, you're working on. And in general, you're always going to have risk. There's always going to be security security vulnerabilities, but you need to think about it as a risk surface that you have for, for your company, for your portfolio, for your cloud, for your infrastructure. And okay, how do I reduce the risk surface all the time? So keep it as minimum as you can. If you don't want any problems, you can just be out of business and you have no problems. But you want to be in business, so you want to have an infrastructure, but just trying to keep the risk surface of your infrastructure as low as possible. Yeah, I like that that concept of security as mindset and uh, your task. I guess you know the uh, the the topic that you get kind of pulled in to do, but also that you know maybe is the pain point that people are trying to do is you know pass an audit in a sense, right? Or you know be able to provide the policy as opposed to truly kind of apply the spirit of the law here. But in the process, you know you you you're sort of forced to consider it and to apply it. And you know, of course, you need to be kind of straightforward in those policies. So you know, lo and behold, that security policy might just make you more secure. I like the, um, the means, the use of the security policy to sort of help trigger trying to establish a mindset of security and not just the policy. An additional part of that uh, mindset, which, which I try to tell uh, the companies I work with, is you need to protect yourself from what you can see or what you know, but also from stuff that you can't see you know it doesn't have to be a concrete vulnerability for you to put a protection there so you know i've been managing companies for many years and some of the conversations i would have with my engineers is they would ask well you know why do we need to put this protection here how would a hacker you know get into our database and kind of that's a wrong mindset to have the right mindset to have is well let's assume a hacker is in the database and what can we do you know, to minimize his access to our data, what can we do to get notified that we're being hacked more quickly? And so you don't have to be able to explain yourself how a hacker can get into your database to put more protections on your database or your network or whatever, whatever it is. One more piece of advice I give companies: you know, security is all about layers. You know, every layer you have, you need to put in some security, and I call it "Don't be an M&M." No, don't have a hard shell uh, on the outside, but then have a soft stomach in the inside. Because just because you you think, you know, your network security might be good, is not an excuse not to uh, protect and patch your uh, servers, not to protect your uh, database. And uh, you never know how uh, hackers are going to get inside. Yeah. I should use the uh, UK version of that, which is "Don't be a smarty." Don't be a smarty, uh, all right. <laughs> might be a, I like uh, it. you know, have more uh, more variation to it. So yeah, but I get, I I agree. Yeah, it's all about sort of defense in depth about the layers and protecting there. Uh, 
you know, this is a lot of this has been on the the kind of the concept of the policy, and you gave a bunch of examples of it. But maybe let's sort of touch on the top highlights, right? Like if you're a startup, you're a B two B startup, right? So you uh, let's even say the big customer has not approached you yet, and you haven't created the policy quite yet. But what are the you know kind of high level bullets of areas that you should worry about when thinking about your security practices that would then be translated into a policy? So that's a good question. You know, I tell the companies I work with, you need to think about security, about the design of your security, kind of like you tell your engineers, and they need to write a good code and that has a good design, so it can a you know scale up, b it will have less bugs over time, c it will be easier to detect problems. The same thing you need to do with your infrastructure. So, as you're building your cloud, don't just go and hack servers and throw them in there and let them. Uh, live by each other and give all your employees uh, access to everybody, and everybody has a super root access, and everybody's SSHing into the machines. Give it a little bit of a thought. Generally, when you work uh, clean, when you work uh, neat, when you separate uh, your environments, you know you have uh, a virtual cloud for your production, a virtual cloud for your development, for your staging environment. You give uh, the right access to the different uh, roles and uh, groups. Uh, you give good naming conventions and you start working uh, organized, then you can immediately see if you have any problems. It's very easy to scale. You can add in uh, more employees later. It'll be easier for them uh, to contribute. So first and foremost, just uh, work organized. You know, it's it's not mm-hmm. even uh, anything related to security, but working organized gives you the infrastructure to be secure. Okay, then kind of additional things uh, to think. There's a big trade-off between the ease of administrating of your system and having a more security, right? It's very easy to give all the employees SSH access to the machines. You know, it's harder to maybe integrate a solution that will pull your logs out of the machine and present them for everybody so they can see the logs when they need them. So there's a big trade-off between system administration and security, right? It's very easy to have everything open, give all the employees a super root access, everybody's SSHing into the machines, pulling off the logs, changing the code with VI on the machine. But of course it's easy to administer that way, but it's not very secure. And kind of having a you know multi-factor authentication, it's annoying, you know, to get SMS every time you want to log in here or you want to log in there. So you need to be somewhere on the on that on that curve. And but definitely pick only the solutions that, that get you a lot of security value, not a lot of administration overhead. Yeah, and I think uh, that one actually I think aligns well with th- thoughts about reliability. Because I guess reliability at the end of the day is also about risk reduction. It's also about you know reducing the risk of something accidentally falling down and crashing. So. I think access control and kind of good visibility and just sort of knowing that there's a smaller set of potential paths to a destination is something that's also good for for just again the health of the system. Which I guess your first point was as well. Like if you're not messy, if you're organized, if you know what's where and who can access what, then the likelihood of something blowing up, you know, whether it's because of an attacker or because of a mistake, are uh, are lower. Okay, sorry, but I cut you off. So you know, we talked about. Those two things. That's one. You know, another one uh, to consider is work on a minimum permissible policy instead of uh, you know maximum permissible policy. So, kind of whitelist the access that you need instead of uh, give access to everybody and try to close it. So, at the end of the day, you find you know your servers don't need that many IPs open and they don't need that many ports open. So, why give access to all the internet and 
not a, not a hundred percent of your employees need access to your server. So don't give everybody access. Give just a minimum amount of uh, people access. And if you think that way over time, again going back to the analogy of the risk surface, then your risk surface remains as small as it can. And you have a lot of uh, employees, and they're of course your biggest asset in the company. But from one perspective, they're also kind of a liability because they all have uh, these laptops that they carry in their bags and they put in their computer when they're driving to, you know, to hang out at uh, night. And guess what? The, their password is the same one they've been using for the last ten years, and it's their girlfriend's name and maybe the date they got uh, engaged or they first kissed. And at the end of the day, those laptops. Hold your code most likely. Hold passwords uh, to important infrastructure. You know, maybe to your cloud, maybe uh, to some. Uh, you know, to the company email. And so, the least amount you give the people ability to accidentally cause uh, damage over time, and uh, you'll get the rewards from it. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think kind of a good emphasis to go back to that concept of a mindset, right? You. When they sort of wish for the best but plan for the worst, or you know, try to not be quite as optimistic <laughs> when you're just sort of uh, granting permission and access. How much does physical access in kind of today's modern world, when you see kind of people discussing security policies, whether as the creator of it or as those demanding it, how much does physical access come into play? What type of recommendations come in there? So you know, this age where everything is in the cloud, we tend to ignore the the physical aspect and. You know, we feel our office is uh, safe, and why would anybody come here, and and all that uh, kind of stuff. But in truth, is a lot of the hacks these days are happening from uh, inside. You know, not not talking about uh, malicious employees, but stuff that happens uh, by accident to employees. And you know, I heard this great story about someone paying a hundred bucks for a cleaning lady to drop a few USB devices on the floor, and they have a little sticker that says, you know, salaries 2015. Well, and guess what? It's almost guaranteed somebody's <laughs> going to pick that stuff up and stick it into their uh, laptop, and you know that USB is going to install a Trojan on that computer, and by chance that's your uh, sysadmin, and he's typing in all his uh, passwords, and there you go. It starts from there, and that's kind of a little social engineering trick, and you think to yourself it's not scalable, but actually all the bad guys work at this stuff at uh, scale. So there's. Always this uh, big smart uh, guy at the top of the pyramid who comes up with all the schemes, and it trickles down all the way to mules who actually do the physical work, you know, on the on the physical level, you know, at the office, at uh, somebody else's office, even stealing money from ATMs, you know, unrelated to security. You think it's unscalable, but but it does scale. It does yeah. scale from the bad sides guy. Yeah, I guess physical access doesn't necessarily need to be somebody kind of breaking into your office at night or stealing your laptop. And you know, I guess the the solution to that is pretty easy. You just need to get everybody the new Apple laptops that don't have any USBs, and you know, <laughs> you're sold. Uh, that's definitely you know that, that's <laughs> one way to approach it. Cool. Well, so I, I think you know, there's probably a lot of those components we're not going to be able to go through, like every single one of the um, of the different policies. What do you in in practice see when you go into companies? Uh, that people are are kind of doing poorly, right? Like you know, odds are a listener to uh, to this podcast who has who is sort of involved in some form of B two B startup. You know, what are the most common mistakes that you see in existing actual setup that the policy flushes out? So, I mean, some of the big mistakes are well, not. I don't, I don't want to call them mistakes. You know, they. Might have a vision Oversights. of a, uh, might there have a vision of a, how their network is uh, structured, but at the end when you come and look, well, you see the database is uh, 
is sitting on the internet. You know, it's not uh, protected by, on a secondary tier. And guess what? It's uh, listening on the default uh, Postgres or MySQL port. And you know, that's a recipe for disaster. So, kind of, there's a difference between what they they're thinking they have or what they want to have or their architecture in mind and uh, what's in place. That's that's definitely one thing. And that's just a matter of attention. You know, most of the companies don't have a dedicated system administrator, don't have a dedicated, you know, a network engineer or something uh, like that. So that's kind of uh, one category of uh, things you would see. The other one, I, I call it the separation of uh, concerns. You know, when you start and you have a few employees, and most of them are uh, your buddies, kind of everybody gets uh, access to everything, and and a single person generally has permissions to. Build and ruin your company at the same time, and it's much better if you can uh, divvy up the responsibilities. So no single person has the ability to single-handedly cause a, a lot of damage. So you know, let's let's uh, give a concrete example. You know, your engineers are writing uh, code. Okay, so of course you don't fear anybody, uh, any of your employees writing uh, malicious code. But let's say they can write code with with the uh, vulnerabilities. But on the other hand. Do they have the ability to also push that code uh, to production? So, if a single person has all that access from the beginning to the end, he has more potential to cause even accidental damage. And if you separate that concerns, there's one engineer and one release manager, and the release manager is another uh, step that your code or that your product needs to work through. Then you have one more one more gate, and that prevents a lot of the uh, you know a lot of those. Mistaken uh, vulnerabilities, and definitely it prevents a lot of uh, malicious. But let's assume nobody has uh, malicious employees. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of comment that indeed adds a layer of protection, but it does so by basically adding a gate, which are oftentimes things that we try to avoid as part of like continuous development. Uh, I'm curious, like how, like I don't know what your mindset is on this around the use of some tools. Like you might be able to tell some Slack bot or something to deploy. So you technically have the permission to do it because you go to Slack and you inform it or sort of you provide a command. But one, it's kind of well logged and, and documented, and second is you kind of had to compromise another system to get that done. So those are definitely the way to go because you know you spend one time, and you put in effort, you're very conscious. You know you make sure it has all the controls, whatever you need. And it does only one activity, and it does it uh, well. It gets your code to the right place on the system, and doesn't deviate left or right, and has uh, very little chances of screwing something up. So that's definitely the way to go. And you know, from my perspective, that ties to one more thing that you see more often than not. So the kind of the separation between the your different environments. So you have the production environment, the you know development environment, the staging environment, and. You really don't want to give the the production keys, make them readily available to everybody. And if you're not thinking about it from uh, day one, then what you see more often than not, then the production keys are checked into the same uh, GitHub repository as all the other keys. And any employee, including the 100th employee that comes to the company, is going to download that repo. Is going to have all those keys there. It's just not a way to go. Okay, so I recommend everybody. Okay, put the production keys somewhere else. 
and more importantly, tie it to an automated system that would pull them from wherever they're sitting and get them on the production server without anybody having to touch them on the day-to-day. Yeah, I think all, all those are very sound advice. In general, I think the notion of thinking about the developer as an attack vector is something that's probably overlooked, right? People don't they consider the risks that happen when an attacker attacks their systems, but not when they attack their developers. There was an interesting play with uh, Xcode Ghost, with this sort of malware in iOS world where a malicious Xcode was distributed, and developers of mobile apps were somehow compromised. They basically used the Xcode Ghost, but really they weren't the target, they were just a distribution vehicle. What was the real target was attackers adding and injecting malware to the applications that those developers submitted to the App Store, and therefore compromising that many more users than install those on their phones. So, you know, in this case, it's literally a distribution vehicle to many systems, but to kind of you know, many devices and users. But in the case of a B2B startup or even like a B2C startup, you know, you get compromised, the developer gets compromised, the software gets compromised. That might be your path to many users' data. Uh, that might be your path to many users that are visiting. A lot of these components, I kind of enjoy the conversation or the highlight of the practices in them. And I think that might even be like a good uh, kind of a finishing note is just to say that a security policy gets triggered from a big customer asking uh, for it, right? Or sort of, you know, from an, an audit requirement. But it really is a good. Opportunity to just have all of these conversations and to think about them if you haven't done them. So it's not all just like necessary evil and you know a piece of paperwork that you need to create. No, definitely not. Whatever gets a conversation going inside the organization, you know, whatever external uh, driver, external push you need, just as long as you have it, that's uh, that's what counts. Cool. So I guess before I uh, let you uh, <laughs> let you go, give a just one last kind of question that I ask many of my guests is, what's your kind of one pet peeve or recommendation to a, a developer or sort of a, a dev shop, an organization trying to up level their level of security? You know, what's the kind of one thing that you would recommend that they do? Well, let me give one one concrete piece of advice that everybody can go out and do today or or check if they're doing today. So one, you take into consideration, you know, you have a company, you have your product, you're specializing in it, uh, but there are all these uh, great infrastructure companies that do have security specialists, network architects, uh, database architects, and you know, they're masters of building all this stuff. They're definitely way ahead of uh, your organization. So if there's one recommendation, actionable recommendation, I can go give everybody is. Make sure all of your servers are behind a load balancer, a CDN, or or some reverse proxy that's managed by by your cloud infrastructure. So if you go to your DNS table and you see an IP of one of your servers there, and uh, you know that's just not a way to go. Uh, shed a few bucks, uh, put put it behind a load balancer, and let you know Amazon, uh, Google, or uh, Microsoft, wherever your cloud is, be the first layer of uh, defense uh, between your company and the and the internet. Yeah, that sounds like really good advice. Introduce a little bit of the pros uh, <laughs> between kind of you and the world to uh, not be the low hanging fruit attack target. Yeah, and in that sense, you know, there's always um, you know the story about the two guys who are walking in the forest and they see a bear and the bear starts running after them. And well, you don't need to be the one that's running faster than the bear. You just need to be the one that's running uh, faster than your friend. So. Just be a little bit more secure than uh, than your competitors. That's, you know, if that can be a milestone for you, that would definitely put you in a better place. <laughs> Just be more secure than the next guy. 
So this was a super enlightening uh, conversation, Geva. Thanks for for coming over. If people have further questions for you, they want to kind of connect with you, contact you. What type of contact details? How can they reach you? Well, best just to email me. My email is geva at snowypeaksecurity. That's G-E-V-A at snowypeaksecurity, or use the contact form on my website www.snowypeaksecurity.com. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. And tune in for the next one. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at the Secure Dev. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over a hundred videos about building developer tooling companies, given by top experts in the field. 